All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got Michaels 1 and 2, Vance and Yano. What's going on, fellas? Yo, you guys were roasting me last week. You guys, I, I listened in. I was getting shredded. You weren't supposed to hear that. <laughs> I was getting right. shredded on Bell Curve. I'm yeah, listening, we didn't think that was a nice actually, little roundup, so, yeah. and you guys sorry, are talking about, about my bald head. My God. Yeah, no, boy, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's awkward to have you back here. <laughs> well, what, what what's awkward, Michael, is uh, the the big hair reveal that you're about to do for us. So uh, I think I yeah. got to get you back, my friend. You're looking, at, ooh, ooh, bussin', baby, bussin', bussin'. <laughs> Dana taught me a new word I'm supposed to know, which is uh, snatch. Mm. What's yeah. that mean? In what context? In what context, friend? <laughs> no, like, I, see, I don't even know how to use it. It's like Michael's looking snatch. I don't know. We need some really? some, some, some Gen Zers to tell me how to do this. I'm not 100 sure on that one. Uh, you might want to want to wait on that till you get further comfort. I actually learned another uh, Gen Z one this week, which is a uh, brick. You guys know what that means? Like like failing, kind of. Like it's freezing. You play basketball. Like it's cold as brick. Like I was gonna come visit you, but it was brick. Mm. It was brick out. It's cold. Okay. I heard huh. I heard a uh, risen. You ever heard a risen? Like I'm risen over something. Yeah, yeah. Good. No, I don't. I don't know that one. You got Riz. Yeah. Yeah, you're excited. I, you're like feeling good. I went to a, a bar trivia night here in New York, and the whole category was Riz. And the, the, for the whole first two minutes, we're like, "What did they say? Like, what? What is that word? Um, <laughs> Could but, you spell uh, that for us, please? <laughs> yeah. Whole, whole English language out here getting reinvented right from under our feet. Um, all right, I actually want to make this a non-macro podcast for a change uh, and get some thoughts on on crypto-specific stuff. So I would love to get your thoughts on kind of the two dominant stablecoins, USDC and Tether. So we've kind of seen some pretty significant outflows from from USDC. Um, and Tether uh, is you know, ostensibly kind of looking at, at Tether dominance is going up. It's looking like the, the safe haven. Um, at least that's what it looks like on the surface. So I'd be very curious to sort of understand what, what you guys think about this. Um, obviously, since the you know Silicon Valley is, situation, issue, whatever we want to call it, had a number of conversations with portfolio founders, uh, I would say uniform across the board and also in surprise to us, the move was to put it into Tether. Basically, like take all the cash that you had Banks were not safe. USDC was not safe. Put it into Tether. And that, you know, was kind of the safe hold of where you wanted to put value, you know, for, for a short duration. Um, obviously, everybody else has now moved to some sort of banking solution or banking infrastructure. But it, it was very surprising to me, at least over the last two weeks, that, you know, uniformly Tether was the thing that everybody immediately went to and said, this is the place we want to keep our value. Um, I mean, obviously, we saw USDC depaid. You saw all the truffle around that. Um, also, talked to a couple of people uh, over the last week who were trading USDC uh, as it was depaying, and it seems like that was a pretty awesome trade. But 
yeah, just it feels like, you know, there is an opportunity to have something be the, you know, the reserve currency. Um, and in a lot of ways, it seems like Tether has been that by default. Yeah, I'm just looking at the the total market cap. Looks like it peaked at 56 and now it's at 33. Peaked at 56 billion in July of 2022. It's kind of the same thing you see with like the bank runs, right? And it's not just, you know, the speed of mobile phones. It's literally just two Ethereum transactions away, 24-7, 365. So it's, you're seeing like finance at the speed of the internet. And it's not surprising that there's this much volatility. I also think there's probably a lot of latent USDC that was just sitting there for one reason or the other. And this was the event that woke people up to either getting to a new stable coin or, or putting it into T-bills or things that are on chain like Ondo. But I kind of wonder where this stops. Like 30 billion seems like, like, you know, you can't really do TA on this chart, but seems like a decent place for it to stop if it were going to. But yeah, USDC kind of getting killed here and circle as a result. Yeah. So just to give people some numbers, it's down from peak or about 90 days ago, it's about 43 billion in terms of market cap. Say it's 32. Rough math says 11, 11 billion in outflows. Does it have, well, does it have something to do with where they invest, where like what it's collateralized by? Like one of them is invested. If you knew nothing about the backstory of Tether and nothing about like, oh, USDC is more reputable. It's like uh, on paper, one of them invests in US bank deposits and the other invests in short-term treasuries. Yeah, I think there's some additional hair on like the USDT thing. Um, you know, like... Frankly, like we have a lot of USDC. I, I wouldn't trust Tether with our balances just because it's kind of indefensible for us to, to go to our LPs. If something were to happen to Tether and say, yeah, this offshore you know banking operation that has like this checkered pass versus something that's holding T-bills in US you know, systematically important banks. So like I continue to think the institutions are just going to be USDC. But I think what you're seeing is just... Asia does not have that same understanding and and frankly, like probably just has a bit more history with USDT versus, you know, something that looks a little bit more regulated like USDC. Mm. Is there any chance that Tether is like interacting with you? I don't really understand how like Tether's mechanism or whatever, like the burning and stuff like that. It, it never really made sense to me. Is there any way that Tether's interacting with USDC in some way? Doubtful. Doubtful. Yeah. I think they would need to keep pretty clean lines between yeah. each of them just in order I to think if you own Tether, you need to have a very strong thesis about why it has been able to stay so steady, despite all of the turbulence out there in the market. Like, you need to have a good explanation. Like, are they that much better at risk management? Are their bond traders just dodging every bullet that exists out there? I don't know. I've never been able to construct a compelling thesis for why it's been so solid. It doesn't make much sense to me. We had a conversation with Market Maker, and, and granted, this was like probably April 2020. Uh, so take it with a grain of salt, as a lot of shit has changed since since then. We had a conversation with a market maker, a very very large reputable market maker, and they said, "Listen, you gotta understand what Southeast Asia is like. When you go to Kowloon and actually see some of the FX prices in the the international currency exchange, they're quoted in Tether." They're quoted in the base currency, which is USDT. Hmm. So I think there is an infrastructure, and, and it's probably not an infrastructure that we're used to seeing that has Tether as a core component, where it's the base currency, it's the base, it's the base trading pair. 
And, and I think that, you know, is really kind of Mike to your point, like, where is this happening? Why is this happening? I think that's a lot of the infrastructure that, you know, props up this currency. So one, one like little data point that I would, that I would throw at you guys is, um, there was, you, you know, there's an, another, uh, we Blockworks also puts out a lot of macro content. I'm actually the host of a small macro podcast called On the Margin. And the what people were talking about a couple, like probably 18 or so months ago, I forget the exact timeline, was do you guys remember when there was a big Chinese real estate firm called Evergrande that was imploding? Yeah. And the concern at that period of time was because all of the the macro kind of trader folks, the what people always say about Tether is, I have never met any anyone who trades for Tether. Like that's what all like the bond traders would say, right? In like U.S. based banks and stuff like that. It's like for for an entity that supposedly has a gigantic, you know, multi billion portfolio of bonds, I've never met anyone that trades for Tether. So then the thought was, all right, well maybe what they're doing, they have exposure to Chinese paper, and then Evergrande happened, and then that was actually dispelled, and Tether came out and said we were not, uh, we had no exposure to Evergrande, which basically meant that you couldn't have exposure to to China at that point. So then the question becomes, if you're not trading in US treasuries and you don't have any exposure to Chinese debt, where is that, you know, however big it is now, you know, 45, 50 billion dollar <laughs> bond portfolio sitting? They do have attestations. It's like, you know, it's on paper somewhere. I don't know what the exact locations of the of the money are, but assuming those attestations are good, I see a compelling reason for people to use this. There's also different, like the one of the different things about USDT versus USDC is there's a pretty robust culture of trading USDT OTC, which sounds a bit strange, but that's how people, you know, first of all, off ramp from a lot of Chinese exchanges, you will go into these like kind of like OTC markets and they used to be more active when, you know, China was really, um, running strong with crypto, and, and I assume they're they're active again now that Hong Kong is back. But you would really kind of use your account as a bartering chip to get, you know, stable coins, which you would then convert into bank deposits. And that's how ninety percent of people that that trade in China, that at least I know, have actually used this. So a little bit different of a use case as well. Um, and there's a network of brokers which will do this for you, and who knows how active they are now, but. There's a pretty robust culture of like trading, you know, peer to peer, like USDT. As strange as that seems, I have no special information. I just like it has never made an enormous amount of sense to me. So that's why I, I kind of was like, I think you need a very strong thesis as to where that money is and and why they might have been might have been so impervious. To this, but it's actually almost eighty billion in market cap, which is larger than I thought. And if you look at the charts of uh, USDC versus Tether market cap, they're basically inverses of each other. Think about this: pretty incredible business model. No matter what, USDC, Tether, any of these stable coins, if you're able to take deposits in to the tune of 80 billion or, you know, a hundred billion dollars, earn three, four, five percent, whatever it may be, or 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 maybe less, sure, but like two, three, four percent, and then you're not paying out any interest. Pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. But you know, Tether should have the same pro or honestly, I I kind of feel like all of them should have similar a similar problem that the banks had in that when they were originally generated all that market cap and had to put it in treasuries, you know, they were doing that at a time when yields were pretty low. But I, you, I don't think USDC should be totally fine. That's why I'm with you guys. USDC is completely audited. They're very transparent, like a high degree of confidence that 
there's legitimate backing there? It's, it's not the same thing because USDC, I think the average tenor of all the, the fixed assets that they have backing up the USDC is like three months. You know, they, they cycle these very, very rapidly. So it really matters what like the short duration of the yield curve is in terms of what their yield is, in terms of what the revenue will be. But it's not like, you know, they're going to get stuck with these hold to maturity securities. Like they're not they're not the same issue as the banks. Ultimately, ultimately, the like, I hope the T-bills end up on chain. And, you know, instead of stable coins as like the base foundational layer of DeFi, you have something that's yield generative. Just because, you know, if you have something that's yield generative, your ecosystem is going to default grow by whatever that yield is year over year. And so you at least like have like a little bit of a tailwind and people a little bit more enfranchised. And there's a cool product out there called Ondo, which does OUSG, which is I think like two or 10 or or whatever year, you know, government uh, fixed income. The problem with those products is that you can't actually get wide distribution because everyone that buys them needs to be an accredited investor or a qualified purchaser, which if you don't know what that means, it usually means there's like a net worth threshold, which is, you know, bullshit. We don't agree with, but like, you know, there is a, a threshold for people who can actually buy these things. Um, and so as a result, you're signing up with Ondo to create, you know, a, a registration in a security, which is a fund. You own an LP stake. Um, and so I don't know how you ever solve that, but my hope is that we can. Um, and I don't think you can do these things synthetically either. I feel like that would just be a lot of risk for the people who are on the other side of the trade. But my hope is that this is where this goes. And maybe we see it come out of a different country. Maybe Europe has you know different laws around who can own government fixed income and who can trade it and things like that. Maybe it's like Asian bonds, but you know someone's going to start doing this just because the stablecoin business model, to Michael's point, is just extremely juicy. And I'm happy they have the business right now. I'm happy they have the revenue because they're going to need it to fight a lot of lawsuits and lobby and do a lot of different things to make you know the future of finance uh, you know happen. But it's uh, it's my hope that it trends the other way over time, more towards giving yield to the ecosystem and consumers. Did you guys read Coinbase's kind of almost call, call to actions? I guess I'd call them for builders, four things that they wanted folks to build. No, what was it? So, so, so Coinbase launched Base. Base basically has like an ecosystem fund, um, and they just put out like the four things they want to see built. One was like things that help enable safer DeFi. Another was um, reputation. Another was like on-chain limit order books, and then the last one was um, what they called flat coins, which are basically decentralized stables. Uh, stables, and specifically, they brought up like. They're like, we have a request to, for like builders to go build uh, decentralized stables that track that are like inflation hedged or like track the uh, growth of inflation, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, I'm curious what you guys think about that. Sounds like an amazing concept <clears throat> in concept, uh, exceedingly difficult to execute on. I mean, to, to Vance's point, like Ondo exists, you know, th- there are real world asset pools. Uh, Maple is a great example of this, you know, a portfolio company, a framework. Um, <clears throat> there are there are also on-chain, you know, insurance pools that you can put money into that are like literally insuring tow truck drivers and and crop insurance. Like there there are ways to get yield that I think are are interesting. The problem is that you literally need to sign documents or or do some sort of signature on-chain such that you're effectively an LP in a fund. 
that doesn't work if you're not someone who can pass KYC. That doesn't work <clears throat> if you're not, you know, from the jurisdiction. And, and frankly, just like doesn't work if you're an individual that doesn't want to sign, you know, LP documents. Um, there, there is a need for KYC and, and all of the process around, you know, fund formation and, and the like. But, you know, the entire point is that there isn't really an opportunity to have someone access this product without effectively like signing LP documents, um, which is, and, and just to be clear, like that, that's way different from, for instance, like having a brokerage account where you can get access to these money market funds. That's way different from anything that we have on chain. Um, if you're using Ondo Finance, you literally have to, you know, effectively sign to be a qualified purchaser, which is a, is a wealth threshold of $5 million. So, you know, there, there are high levels of access uh, constraints that effectuate whether or not you can have access to this product, even in DeFi. So I, I agree, it's, it, it's awesome to conceptualize, but very, very difficult to effectuate. I have, I've heard a couple of VCs say they're not necessarily fans of early stage companies holding their treasury in even something as safe as T-bills just because you don't have like an enormous amount of financial competence at an early stage company. And it doesn't happen super often, but if you held treasuries, depending on the duration in 2022, you might've lost, you know, 25% of your, of your treasury. So I'd be curious what you guys just kind of think about holding treasuries or like, what is, what is treasury management supposed to look like for early stage startups? Don't do that. Don't just hold your money in cash in a bank. Like just to, replay this is my opinion just to replay ftx like okay you're a startup you had your money in ftx what was the money doing in ftx well we were trying to you know buy euros and like because we you know had to pay people in euros or like we thought we could get some yields it's like okay are you running a hedge fund like, wh like what are you doing you know that that's at least my perspective i don't think the risk can really or the reward can really ever outweigh the risk if mission one is getting your product to market and keeping your team alive. If you're the CEO of the company, you really have two jobs, you know, keeping the company funded and keeping everyone in line. And like if you blow your company up because you put all your money in, I don't really care where, that's your fault. So one of the things I was going to add to this is uh, a month ago, I would have said absolutely 100%. That makes total sense. After the last month, everything we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank, imagine replace FTX with Silicon Valley Bank and replace the situation that happened versus what could have happened, which is depositors don't get 100% of their money back or it goes into receivership and you have to fight for it for the, over the next 24 months. The, the thing that I think is important to note is like there is a very huge difference between $250,000 of FDIC insurance versus how much money your company probably needs to raise to be able to pay operations over the next two years, which is you know what you should have. There are cash sweep accounts, there are money market funds. You don't have to go off and buy T-bills, but there are places where as interest rates ebb and flow, you're not going to lose value on the, the actual value that you have in your account. And in fact, you probably will gain value uh, but I, I think keeping it in a money market fund is probably, you know, the best opportunity here, given everything that's going on, as crazy as it sounds, in the banking center. So then how do you grapple with the fact that a lot of the protocols that you guys invest in still hold 
uh, a lot a, a decent chunk of their treasury in their own native token their own native token or usdc mm, their own native token from what i've seen yeah i, I mean you kind of think of it as like operating expense versus incentive fund you have usdc or you have cash stable coins as the way to pay people and that's the salaries that are coming out every you know two weeks or whatever it is and then you have tokens that are incentivizing the team incentivizing the community to go off and be aligned with the rest of the community, with the rest of the protocol. Um, and yeah, sure, a lot of treasuries are de- denominated or effectively denominated in the currency that they have. But it's kind of like saying, you know, the, the employee stock option pool is denominated in the in the company stock. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, all right, guys, let's let's talk a little bit about, I know um, you guys flagged uh, a report that was written this week on CBDCs. Um, that was by Citi. And kind of the combination of that in uh, real world assets or the sort of real world asset, you know, real estate tokenization trend that we've been seeing. You guys um, talk a little bit about that. I personally have a pretty negative view on CBDCs. Uh, I don't think like we all have digital money in our bank accounts. Every time we use Apple Pay, every time you use a credit card, like, you know, we have digital money already. The only reason why you would have a CBDC on like the consumer payment side is to be able to have not only read permission, which the government already does into basically every financial transaction, but also write access and be able to reverse things, to be able to block things, to be able to subtract money, to be able to add money. I personally just think that's a pretty slippery slope. And I think it's pretty cool that Ron DeSantis banned CBDCs in Florida. You know, big shout out to him for realizing that this is probably not a path that we want to go down. I, I think it becomes another veneer, um, a layer of privacy control. Um, frankly, I, in my mind, we already have a CBDC and sure it traded off peg, but USDC is redeemable for a dollar as long as you have a bank account that can receive it. And in my mind, that's really kind of the fastest, the best. It's also really interesting that uh, Fed Now is apparently launching in July. We'll see, you know, what that is and what that does. Um, but I, I do generally think, uh, you know, there is there is definitely going to be competition from you know the public sector that's coming to the private sector, which is Circle and USDC. The the the, the expectation. I don't know if you saw that. If you guys dig, dug into the paper, but I think um I think the number they floated out was like five trillion. Cir- cir- 5 trillion of CBDCs circulating in the economy uh, within seven years. I, like the, the one thing that I would say is an interesting use case for central bank. I, I don't know if it's like central bank digital currencies, but I'm going to tie it. I'm going to tie the macro to the crypto here. Like if you think about things like, um, uh, like the TGA, which is the treasury general account or the RRP, which is the reverse repo, uh, repurchase facility, like those things have trillions of dollars in them. And the Fed is trying to get this money, you know, through incentives to move into or out of these programs or into or out of the banks or into or out of the financial markets. And it all kind of seems like it's pretty manual and stick to get stuck together by like duct tape. Like if you had all of these assets, you know, say like the central bank issued all the T-bill auctions on chain and had all those assets on chain and maybe they had read and write permissions and maybe they could, you know, give people incentives to move into these places or, you know, penalize them to move out. Like, you know, if, if you assume that monetary policy is, is one of the most important things that, you know, the U.S. is doing today, it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense that we're running on probably like 1960s technology. So I think like central bank digital assets, not central, central bank digital currencies are pretty interesting. Um, like, imagine if the RRB was on chain, 
Like that yeah, but you're be- basically trading off. Yeah, but then you're basically trading off efficiency. It's like, yeah, they improved the antiquated ACH system, obviously, dr- like drastically, right? Imagine there's another global health health pandemic, country shuts down, you're out of work, government announces a stimulus plan, same day, sti- stimmy, stimmy checks could hit, could hit your bank account. And like, yeah, that's a big improvement. But what you're trading off is privacy, control, and surveillance. Because in that same world, the government could then block your transactions if you attend a protest that they disagree with or even worse they can shut down your entire account if you post let's say you post on social media in favor of like some riots or something like that like then they can shut down your account and i think it's not that's why i i'm like i think cbdc's are one of the are a huge have like a potential to be one of the most dangerous things um in, in this is already happening too people are already yeah. getting financially deplatformed i'm like very anti cbdc yeah, yeah. That's why Ron um, he's the truth. <laughs> is are we are we starting Bonnie that narrative did. this early, Bonnie Vamp? <laughs> no, 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 too early, too early. Too early. <laughs> Guys, the, I know the caucuses start in January. It's like seven months away, and then and like once you know if DeSantis announces in the next couple months, that's all people are going to be talking about for the next eighteen months. <laughs> once if he announces. <laughs> You know, I I think <laughs> I was actually a little worried about, you know, we're moving our, our DAS event to Washington, D.C., and we've been kind of doing our, I mentioned you guys a couple of times, we've been doing some research and talking to people down there. And it's been a little worrying to hear that what everyone wants to hear about and what people think are going to be relevant is going to be relevant a year from today is CBDCs. And I would say the majority of people, they view it as inevitable that it's happening on a relatively shorter time frame than I think most would be. This uh, this news kind of flew under the radar, but I think it's one of the more interesting pieces of news over the last week. Did anyone see what happened with Matt Taibbi the day that he went to go uh, testify in front of Congress? Yeah, the house arrest. No, no, not house arrest, but like or the, the, uh, the, the uh, yeah, <laughs> got put under house arrest. <laughs> no, the, some IRS agent rolled up to his house. And left him like a note, which was like, yeah, call the IRS awesome. in the next four days. Yeah. <laughs> not, not just that. His existing tax returns were refuted. Basically, oh, right. the IRS said over the last three years, the tax returns that you have, we're rejecting them and we are reopening forensic audits into your tax returns. The day that he was supposed to go and testify in front of Congress on the Twitter files. Imagine if they could automate that and just take all his money. Just be like, sorry. There is a, a an executive control that I think you know cannot go understated here that we need to protect, and this is the the entire conversation around CBDCs. Yes, Ron DeSantis, you know, pro anti CBDCs, but the the fact of the matter is, any sort of control left unchecked, I mean, who's going to be the one who regulates the CBDC? Who's going to be the one? who actually controls whether or not, you know, these things and these powers can happen. Did you see the Twitter, uh, sorry, not the Twitter, the, the TikTok uh, proposal? And granted, it's a, you know, it, it's a proposal that's not going to affect, it's not going to go into effect. 20 years imprisonment if you access the application from a VPN. You know, the, the, the Secretary of Communications, which is a new cabinet position that the president would uh, you know, appoint an unelected person would choose a council of people beneath them to 
decide which which applications should be banned, which countries are, are foreign adversaries. You know, how are we going to have any sort of checks and balances into that control? And I, there there is a there's a governmental overreach that I think, you know, is kind of the core to what CBDCs represent. But it's happening not just on the financial side, it's happening on the communi- communication side as well. You know, what I think is particularly dangerous about this is look at what's happening in, you know, with regional versus big banks. There's already a natural economic trend that flows towards this anyway. Like our whole fractional reserve banking system is basically levered bond funds in a way. And those are inherently risky and they kind of blow up from time to time. And every once in a while, when these bank failures start, people are like, well, I should just be able to park my money in somewhere that I don't have to risk it getting, uh, you know, losing my money that should just exist as a product. And, you know, the, the benevolent side, like imagine a very benevolent kind of technocrat in charge of this. And it's like, well, how could I give people what they want and also make my life easier, you know, and that all roads lead to CBDC, or even if it's not a CBDC, I'd argue that there's not a gigantic difference in between a world where there's a CBDC by our definition versus the fed and like five or six big banks, you know, because that's just to use crypto terminology, that's just a base layer with one node and then a layer two with like four four or five nodes. I mean, there's no, those, those aren't real. There's no, I don't know what the difference really is. I, I kind of agree. I think a, we're not that far away from a CBDC and yeah, I, I find it extremely concerning. I echo all those concerns that you, you made, Jason. Um, it's a massive overreach, I think. From I see. That, just to be clear, we believe that there will be some sort of legislation that gets you know bipartisan support, therefore approved in the next you know call it eighteen months for stable coins. We we don't believe that there will be anything that happens in the next eighteen months on CBDCs. Hmm. The, oh my God, the CBDCs are going to move at the pace of government. Like, how long <laughs> have we been waiting for Fed now? It's going to be a while until this is reality. Yeah, I remember we had a call with uh, Jen, Jen, uh, Christopher Jen Car- Carlo, I think was his name, the CFTC chair. And like, when was that, Mike? We were talking about DAST. I don't know if you were on that call. It was like mid mid 2020. And um, he was explaining to us how like a tokenized US dollar is, is going to be built and how it's going to happen faster than we realize. And that was three years ago. Yeah, the, the same people that brought you the post office are going to build the CBDC. And it's literally going to go zero places. I will say post office. Very impressive. Post office is pretty good. All right, Very all right. the original. Yeah. Yeah. DMV. About the DMV. Like <laughs> DMV. Is the DMV. Post office got ton of wild. Yeah. <laughs> DMV is state, bro. <laughs> <laughs> same same difference to me. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, faster than you expect means less than twenty five years. Yep. It's kind of interesting this week, like we've both seen like the CBDCs are, are like too powerful for, for humans. And also like the AI is too powerful humans echo sentiment. It feels like we're getting to this point where like, maybe we can't control all these like power tools. Maybe these aren't good for us. So here's what I think is going to happen with CBDCs. Just to capstone this, this point, uh, they're going to happen elsewhere. And the U.S. is going to be probably one of the last places that would implement a CBDC. We're going to see test cases in South America, we're going to see them in Southeast Asia, we're going to see them in you know, Europe. And those are going to be the examples that we you know, use and leverage and, and identify to test and see. But it's not going to be something that happens in the US 
at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. I hope you're right. I don't know. If I if I like really tried to put myself in the shoes of a technocrat in charge of this stuff, it's very easy to say I'm solving people's problems. I'm giving people what they want and I get to make my life easier in the first place. And the thing that I would just say that's a little bit different this time than Jason when you and I were talking to that person three years ago is banks weren't blowing up in that period of time. And that can hasten these sorts of solutions. It's a really elegant solution for solving the problem in a way. Do you know what I mean? Solve It gives people what they want and they get this thing that they really want. I, I Well, I, I think what will speed it up is not the like collapse of SVB and all that kind of stuff, but um, the narrative that the US is losing its global reserve currency status is like not in the mainstream yet, but it will be in like a year from now. And um, I think if you if you go back and read that, like the Giancarlo paper that they wrote, the like one of the main points was that a CBDC would help the digital dollar remain the global reserve currency. And so Fareed Zakaria was on CNN screaming bloody murder this. about how the US dollar was, you know, going into the tubes. Really? If CNN yeah. is covering it, I'm it's already it. over. Right. I saw it on Hood Ratchet. Oh, oh, oh. Hood Ratchet <laughs> News is an Instagram account. <laughs> Mike, what is your uh, content diet? You must have such a good content diet. Hood Ratchet. Just a I lot like of zero zeitgeist. I like to send the zeitgeist, yeah. Did you know that CNN is not a top 20 news organization anymore? Based based on page Based on <laughs> Based on total. Based on total what Ron DeSantis told you or? No, no, based on total viewership uh, across all their platforms. It, it, it's, it's all about terrible. Newsmax now. <laughs> True social. It's it like, have you heard the... of this little gem called Breitbart? I had never heard of this, but it really, I just found it on that. It's a little gem on the web. <laughs> we tried so hard not to make this a, a macro podcast. <laughs> 540 million page views a month on CNN. Good God. So if if Optimism and Arbitrum are like the canonical two L2s and like you're a successful application that builds on either of them and, and has a lot of success, why would you stay on that L2 versus just building your own thing like Coinbase? Like... Like, is the model for L2s going into the future just like these two big kind of monoliths with a bunch of L3s? Or as a project, would you prefer to be an L2? I think it's a really good question. I don't really understand why. Yeah. I think that's already kind of happening with like the, even the OP stack and Coinbase's decision to not launch as a layer three, but as their own competing layer two, I think says a lot. Like I had a conversation with somebody today and they were like, these L2s are going to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. I was like, okay, how do, how do we get there? And, and what are the assumptions that you need for that to be true? And like the crux of it is, do you eventually just want to own everything as an application? Like the few games that we're very excited about, like in terms of, you know, that are launching soon, that are, you know, high quality, that, you know, have a chance to bring on ten, tens of millions of users. They want the whole stack. They want the DeFi. They want the MEV from the transactions. They want the fees from payments that go back and forth. Like I'm increasingly convinced that it's a going to be a different model than we think, and b, you know, just the the pressures of people wanting their own L2s and the ability to just cross layer message and and be wherever you want and access whatever you want on any other L2 is going to change the entire landscape of investing in, in this type of stuff. That's kind of what I was thinking about this morning. It sounds um, reductive to say this, but I think it comes down to two variables. Number one, it's cost. And number two, it's essentially like feasibility, like 
what is what is the layer two versus the app chain versus the layer three versus whatever infrastructure stack you're proposing? What does that enable versus the other options? Um, when I was at Dropbox, one of the big like things that we went through and, and Dropbox from you know 2007, 2005 when it started uh, until about 2014 um, was 100% based around AWS. Think of it as like cloud storage brought to you by Amazon Web Services. And one of the big you know things that the, the team went through in, in 2013, 2014 was do we go off and build our own infrastructure to be able to like, you know, when Dropbox is down, pick up the phone and call a Dropbox employee versus an Amazon employee. Like there, there were so many different like NPV, like net, net present value calculations done. There were so many strategic analyses. Ultimately, we moved in the direction of building our own infrastructure. Also, fun fact, you know, the fastest way to move that much data, you literally rip out the hard drives, put them on trucks and drive them to a new data center. That's the fastest way to move that much data. The, the fact of the matter is ultimately the NPV positive analysis that was done was NPV negative when all was said and done because Amazon just get, kept on getting faster, kept on getting better, it kept on getting cheaper. There is an element where I think it really comes down to like, what is the infrastructure stack and what is the cost to, to build the application that it's hard to project out like which L2, L3 app chain is going to work, which one of those models is going to be the best. But, but it really comes down to like, what do you need as an application and how much is it going to cost you? I think you're right about that. I think one thing, I mean, we've talked a little about ETH and Cosmos on this on this uh, podcast and this whole app chain thesis that got born kind of in Cosmos and has now migrated its way to ETH. And the the game is all about execution. So I can totally see the the kind of bull argument for what's playing out on Arbitrum and Optimism. I do think though that the different like one thing that crypto hasn't really had to contend with yet is users, frankly, to just be totally honest. And one different starting point, like just having gotten in the weeds with a lot of people that are like, there's, there's no, you know, I'm not meaning to throw shade. It's just very different perspectives. Like people from the Ethereum foundation tend to approach things from when you're designing an economic system like MEV, a lot of times from the perspective of Ethereum, uh, like what does Ethereum, the network need to be in order to be this decentralized, neutral base layer. But people in Cosmos approach things very differently and they say, like, what is the best user experience? And I actually think that ETH should be approaching it exactly the way that it is now. But that's not to say that there isn't another perspective. And after the job of building that neutral censorship resistant base layer is done, there's an enormous amount of work, like wood that needs to get chopped on just building for users. Um, and I think a lot of teams will will figure out. To your point, Mike, maybe Vance, these these layer twos won't be worth hundreds of billions. They'll be worth a lot of money and they'll be able to raise a lot of capital. And they'll probably say to themselves, like, I'll recruit my own network of sequencers or whatever it is. I need to have a hundred percent control over my my product and my user experience. So I think there probably will be a lot of teams that that go out and say that. It just feels a little bit weird right now that it's like, you know, the L2s that Arbitrum and Optimism have built are ostensibly what everyone will build in the future. And so like that is probably not their real product. 
it's like these L3s where you use uh, Arbitrum or Optimism to settle on. And I, I think that's the question you really have to ask these developers. Is it like, do you want that? Or, or do you want to build on ETH? Assume all the costs are equal. Uh, and I think that is going to be probably just a war of like BD and like bringing people on or the branding of the chain itself. But it's unclear to me how it all resolves because like congratulations, Optimism, Arbitrum, you've created amazing copy paste networks that we can just deploy for things like base and for things like consumer app chains and stuff like that. So kind of hard to, hard to understand right now. I think, <clears throat> I think Mike, you, you hit the nail on the head in that uh, we've never had to build infrastructure for a mass of users. We've also never had to build applications for massive users. Mm. The whole model of everything that everyone has ever built in crypto gets thrown out the window the second that you have, you know, you go from thousands of users to millions of users. It's going to be really fascinating to see that transition. Single Mike, what are your updated thoughts on, on like now that Arbitrum and stuff have, and, and Optimism have like pushed forward this kind of like L3 narrative and like app chains on ETH is becoming a thing. Then you, I know you were pretty bullish on Cosmos after that season. Um, people in crypto tend to make a lot of very like technical arguments about stuff. And I understand there's like good reason to do that. There's a lot of like soft stuff that I think gets totally glossed over. Things like brand, things like culture, that kind of thing. Ethereum built the culture that it needs to build. They are very, very focused on solving this problem that's, I think actually not to be, I think it's important for the future of humanity. I think it is a, a good, but they have a very specific mindset for how they approach designing systems. Cosmos just starts from a totally different vantage point. Um, they're, then they just have a different set of problems. Like Ethereum now probably has built the winning chain that has the most momentum and consensus behind it. The question is, can you change the way the, like the influential people in Ethereum think from, okay, we've built what we need to build here in terms of like an economically neutral, credible system and start like change to how we need to change to attract a whole bunch of users. And then Cosmos needs to, they, they got to figure out the thing that Ethereum has perfected. They got to figure out economic security. They've got their own cold start problem to solve. So I, I, they're, they're, they're converging on the same thing. They just have different starting points. Ethereum's in the lead, that's for sure. But I, yeah, I don't know how it all plays so out. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> if, if you have a million new new blockchain users, someone who has never touched a chain before, doesn't even know what MetaMask is, et cetera, where do you think they aggregate? Like, like what, is, what is the thought process? What's the like mechanics of them getting- I think they aggregate to whatever. I, I don't think they aggregate to like an Ethereum or something like that. I think they go to whatever application is the best application. Yeah, exactly. That was giving me my perspective as well, which is yeah. it, it doesn't matter which chain they're on. It matters which applications they're getting dri yeah. driven towards blockchain. I heard the most like left bell curve, like Occam's razor take of why someone chooses Cosmos versus, um, versus like building an L3 on Ethereum when I was in San Francisco and met some of these founders is um, it's kind of like starting your website with um, like when we launched Blockworks, we started on uh, we started on Squarespace. And then we went to Webflow and then eventually we built a full stack like web app, but only after like year in like year four, when we needed like to service millions of users. And so like these, what the founders were telling me, like their thought process, they're like, oh, we're all just going to build on like op, like the OP stack or, or ba Coinbase base or Arbitrum because they give us a full suite of developer kits. But they're like, that doesn't mean that in like 
three or four years, like if we're successful, like if the L3 or if like the if the ETH people like the base and Arbitrum and stuff can't support us being able to build more and more of the stack, then we'll be forced to go to Cosmos, just like Blockworks was forced to like Webflow and, and Squarespace weren't able to give us what we wanted. So we were forced to go build our own thing, even though it's much harder to do that. This exact effect is happening with games right now. And and I'd say games is the canary in the coal mine for maybe not millions of users, but like tens to hundreds of thousands of concurrent users. They're trying to build on top of mainnets or L2s. And it's sort of like mainnet, okay, that didn't work. L2, uh, like Polygon, maybe. But now they're like, okay, we need our own, we need our own app chain. Well, why, yeah. why did, there, there's just no tell, question. Tell them why, Michael. Why do they need their own app chain? The costs are prohibitive, uh, but also the blockchain itself is not capable of running that many concurrent transactions. You know, if you have hundreds of thousands or millions of, of users concurrently, you either need to have almost zero interactions with the blockchain for that interaction. Like, you know, you're playing the game, you win something, great, this thing gets dropped into your wallet, blah, blah, blah. Whatever that blockchain interaction is, is a transaction that exists on chain. Well, if you have millions of concurrent users, that's going to be hundreds of thousands of concurrent you know, transactions. That's just not going to work on a blockchain. So you either need to design the chain or design the game in a way that interacts with the chain in like kind of a weird way, or you need to run your own infrastructure. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there, there could be a sweet spot here. We're talking about it like it's black and white. There's um, like a sweet spot between app specific, like an, an app chain and, and roll, like a rollup centric uh, future could just be like sovereign rollups, um, which I don't know. Dude, you're, I know you might've missed something. That exact spectrum was the whole point of last season. It's like L3s on Ethereum on one, on one over here, full sovereign Cosmos app chains over here. And then in the middle is like what Sovereign Labs is kind of doing and there's a, or, or celestia or something celestia. like that yeah that's the that's probably the, and that's there's the celestia. Yeah. and there's honestly like oh that's probably why it was in my head then yeah because you i remember you talked to the celestia guys a bunch and it's um i find compelling reasons for each one of these things yeah. i i i just it's hard to know yet it's hard to know yet let me give me, you the, least, the biggest right. left curve left of the bell curve take on 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 just why eth l1 will continue to be dominant all of these l2s which I generally think we have a consensus that, you know, even though the long-term future is potentially uncertain, they're going to be massive, you know, fully diluted valuation outcomes for these L2s. They're all launching their tokens on ETH L1. ETH L1 is like the NASDAQ of, of crypto. You know, if you launch your token on some other chain, like not to shit on Polygon, say you launch your token on Polygon, like you don't have nearly the same access to whales, to institutions, to individuals that you would as, as on ETH L1. And so all the biggest assets are going to continue to be there. And I think over, over time, you build a real financial moat as a result. Like, do you want to IPO on the NASDAQ or do you want to IPO on like the Belgium, you know, Southern Division? Toronto Stock, Stock Exchange. Exchange. Like, you, of course. You don't I want was to about to say that. The TSX. TSX hey, don't make fun of the TSX. <laughs> that is a reputable stock exchange. The, the TSX is the Toronto uh, Stock Exchange. It's known for basically like back in the day, people would wildcat oil wells and like kind of dig their own oil pits and they would like IPO these pink sheets on the TSX. It was like wild and crazy. And, you know, Canada's pretty buttoned up now, but the TSX is still kind of like a degenerate stock exchange. So they keep it real. Totally. I didn't mean to 
I didn't mean to disparage the TSX. There are about 15 companies that are super happy to be listed there. So Galaxy's listed there. Uh, so just, uh, you know. I know. I know. So I'm just, I'm just messing with <laughs> <up>. uh, <laughs> I think it's like the, these are interesting. Uh, these are interesting debates to watch to watch play out. I think there's a natural. I don't know. There's a natural. Um, you know what? Actually, you guys got me thinking, by the way, about now that we're just talking about some of these things with with brand and so we, we had a, a, a podcast a couple maybe like a month or two ago talking about uh is eth money is there a monetary premium there or like is bitcoin going to win that monetary premium and i i still think that my my opinion back then was bitcoin has this brand that's like very easy to understand and it will do it's it's much simpler i think but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that because I think in an ideal world, the problem with Bitcoin as a as the base money is that there's no elasticity to it at all. I actually think ETH's monetary design is much better, like it makes more sense. Um, but I also think putting it in the context of where we are in the world right now in the macro, I think things basically move in intense overreactions and then intense corrections to fix those overreactions and the big problem with like how everything works in on the fiat l1 is that there are no checks and balances and it's grown to this like crazy growth and way oversupply of credit and i think it overcorrects to bitcoin even though i actually you guys kind of did make me think about it and i i kind of do think that the monetary policy of eth is maybe better but i still do think um bitcoin ends up and you can you can like bitcoin they're talking about exporting Bitcoin or properties of Bitcoin within rollups. It's a way to export Bitcoin timestamps to Cosmos chains to prevent reorg attacks. That's pretty interesting. Like one of the problems for a Tendermint consensus is it's sort of vulnerable. There's instant finality, but you're sort of vulnerable to these long range uh, reorg attacks, which is why there's an unbonding period of, I'm pretty sure it's 21 days in Cosmos. And that's a problem for like liquid staking in Cosmos, mm -hmm. where the way you're supposed to balance that out is through an arbitrage. And if you have a 21 day withdrawal period, it just makes it very difficult to run that sort of trade. So if you could pay a little bit extra to ensure against a long range reorg, you could you could reduce the unbonding period and make it much easier, like add a whole bunch of liquidity to to that protocol that's stride protocol in cosmos which is super cool shout out Aiden. mike you're going deep man so, you're getting deep in the weeds of, of this stuff. dude i've been that's yeah cool. i've been deep I in like the weeds. It. yeah yeah it's um mike I tell us tell, tell us how much mev content you've consumed over the last like <laughs> two months oh. man <laughs> i shout, um, shout out sister sister pod that is yeah. uh it's been good yeah, I actually got to shout out Hasu. He's been um he's been great. He's a he's a really he's a good dude, smart guy. Um I mean, he is one of those things where it's like there's like rabbit holes and then there's like Alice in Wonderland rabbit holes and then there's MEV. <laughs> and it's just you can go so so deep and it's pretty complicated stuff, but it's good. It's been good. Um any takeaways like, from that from the MEV learning so far? Yeah, I actually think that like that, I think that wallet right now, there's a lot of the, a lot of the discussion in MEV is based around like block space auctions and people have been worried forever about centralization on the validator level. Whereas really what you're, where you're going to have to worry about centralization is around the, the wallet, the wallet level. Um, and everyone's going to move to like, pri I think private order flow is probably inevitable. Um, 
And then the way that MBB is going to get allocated is through order order flow auctions instead of the block space auctions will still exist. They'll just be smaller and a less significant portion of MEV. And I think that the, the worrisome layer for centralization is going to be wallets probably, but you might actually get rebates for trading on these platforms. Cause that's how it, there will be MEV that's redistributed back to users to the point where it could actually, you could sort of be getting paid to trade, which would be a cool user experience. Can we get a can we get a check on where you guys think we're at in terms of uh, markets and whatnot? Uh, we got, we got a handy chart here. Shout out Garrett who who put this together. Um, but it's been a, it's been a very good start to the year for for crypto in general. Um, but you know because this is a macro pod, it looks it looks a little dicey out there still for 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 macro. So I know I, I know we kind of ask you guys this this each week, but you know. What are your what are sort of latest thoughts on where we're at? We uh, we had a conversation yesterday with one of our core LPs for one of our first funds, um, and I, I think the the salient quote from that conversation was, and, and he's you know a, a reputable hedge fund manager, um, you know from the '90s, and has just like seen markets over the last three, four decades. So it's just like very well attuned to what's going on. And it's always great to talk with them and just like get a sniff test of what's what's happening kind of broadly. Um, he said that amongst the conversations that he's having, there are absolutely zero people that are bullish, except for him. He loves to get in the mix when things are looking dicey. And he's just seen this so many times that appreciate his perspective. But He's like basically the last, and he's like in the New York circle of, of those types of people, but he's kind of the last bullish person. And I think that's kind of what you need for these things to continue. Like, I think we've largely seen the snapback rally just because we were so beaten down last year. Um, but the real question is where, are we, where do we go from here? And not a whole lot of people believe the bullish case. The bearish case is very easy to make, but I don't know. The bank stuff has kind of slowed down, it seems. Doesn't doesn't seem like we're going to be talking about that in a month, you know. I, I think the bank stuff has slowed down. So uh, I think of it in terms of categories. Um, if we take venture capital, you know, you can separate that into growth equity and sort of early stage. Early stage, I think, is, is pretty much like limited from the exposure of what's happened over the last eighteen months. Just given that you're investing in an earlier stage, like investment pace has slowed down. You know, entrepreneurship. A lot of people aren't jumping in to you know, figure out what company they want to build. They're, they're trying to fight for their jobs. Uh, growth equity, I think, is in a very troubled state, but we've known that literally since like middle of 2021 when everything started to, to hit, the, hit the fan. Um, the things that I think are, are relatively new are commercial real estate, where you have $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate debt that needs to be refinanced by the end of 2023. The fact of the matter there is you've got hard assets. You also have sort of like this, this need to refinance versus, you know, not, not financing. Like th there are elements where that could really blow up. That could really get bad. The, the thing that I am tracking now, which has kind of been over the last couple of months, just thinking about this. The one thing about commercial real estate is it's fixed rate lending. So all of the terms of those loans 
are generally fixed at whatever the whatever the interest rate was when they made those, you know, 7, 10, 15 year loans. The thing that is not fixed that has gone skyrocketed, private equity. And you, you think about taking the exact same concept, which is a company, you lever it up, you know, five, seven, 10 times where you're putting 10% equity down. That company then has to pay LIBOR plus 500 basis points, LIBOR plus 400 basis points. Like those are usually the leverage finance terms for how you're, how you're levering these companies. So you've got a simultaneous effect of number one, growth and revenue prospects subdued and declining. Number two, you've got interest rate increases that are making it such that the debt service alone is the entire cash flow for the company. And so you kind of have this like effect of Blackstone, Apollo, you know, the, the major and, and not specific to them or their portfolios, but like the major private equity firms and the, and the portfolios that they put together, these companies are levered to the hilt and you've got increasing interest rates and decreasing growth. Something is, is bound to break at some point. And we're starting to see that, you know, obviously with the, the Blackstone real estate portfolio that that I think is a little bit more fickle than what I'm talking about. But you, you ultimately do have, you know, these companies that are just not going to be able to make their debt service. And, and what do you do when high yield debt at a corporate level gets blown out? You know, keep in mind, high yield debt is superior to, to equity. Like what happens to the companies and the equity beneath it? The, there, there's a lot that's going on. Yeah, the commercial real estate thing is interesting because first of all, it's so, it's so large and there, I actually heard there was a good amount of variable rate financing that happened for, for commercial real estate and they have fixed yield on the asset, right? Like the cap rate. Um, and the other thing about commercial real, at least like offices is that I think the jury's kind of out now that work from home, hybrid work is going to be a thing forever. So these assets need to get re-rated. So not only are you going to be underwater on the financing, but the assets themselves need to get re-rated. And I think that's the problem. My good friend is a commercial real estate developer uh, in a major city. And I was like, how does this work? Like this whole process. Um, and he's like, well, I've never repaid a loan. I've always just refinanced it. Like th there's never been a time where he's had to like, you know, I've borrowed X and like, here you go. And like, you know, there it is. And it's paid off just like always revolving and it's the michael howell thing exactly you gotta get the role exactly and i was like well which banks are like doing these loans he's like you know pretty big banks like bank of the ozarks you know like deutsche bank is in there like you know like, oh, these random what? banks that i've never heard of I, like i don't know anything about commercial real estate i was like this is going to be a disaster i'll call you and talk <laughs> yeah so you know Bank of the Ozarks. Yeah, apparently oh, they're deep in it. But I, I also went to a school. I came out of undergrad. I went to USC, where the cool thing to do coming out of school was become a real estate developer. Because like people think Los Angeles is the city of entertainment. It's really like the city of just like never ending sprawl and never ending developments. It's gonna be a rough one for for that crowd. We also we also graduated into a decade of zero interest rates. Dude, when I graduated, I was like, you guys are just printing money. How is it this easy? They're just like, yeah, you just build physical stuff and then people like come in and they'll pay for it. And like you levered it up nine to one. Man, that sounds great. Here, here's the here's the counter argument to this being like a huge catastrophe is that um, 
it's really not in the interest of cities to see like a whole street of like office buildings basically just completely wiped out. <laughs> Have you been to San um, Francisco recently? I was on market. I, I went on market street and was going to like walk to your guys' office. And I was like, I'm getting an Uber. This is, Dude, I'm, I'm you, go, you go to market life. street and you're like, something yeah. sinister has happened here. Like what did you yeah, people I went do? to that taco to, like, place next to market it. street. And I was like, <laughs> you guys want to get the guess, guess what percentage of commercial real estate loans are held by small banks. 70. Yeah, it's 70%. Guess, guess what? So, okay, I will say, like, commercial real estate, there are five different categories that you could broadly put into commercial real estate. One of them is offices. A lot of them, a lot of the value is offices. So it's not like commercial real estate as a whole is getting screwed over. Like, no, if you own warehouses right now, you're, you're doing really well. If you own offices, it's a tough time. But... Within offices, do you know what the over uh, in the entire United States vacancy rate is? And this isn't like we have a lease and we're paying it, but like people aren't coming into the office. This is like zero leased office space. Do you know what that is? Hit the highest mark in history, 18.7%. One in five square feet in, in the United States of office space is unleased. Commercial real estate feels a little bit like crypto, where it was just like anything goes for, for a full decade. And now it's like, okay, half of you are in trouble. <laughs> we, we just don't know which half. Okay, so you guys want to hear, so there's going to be a weird like second order impact of all of these vacancies, which is that there are all these green rules that got put in place a couple of years ago in Europe that said, if you're under a vacancy, if you don't have like a, let's call it like 80% vacancy in, in your place for like, two years at a time, you're not allowed to operate that building. And I think they just like didn't think about this and didn't think about like COVID obviously happening. And I, just, I don't what know. Do I just, I don't know. I have, to, I have to look up those. I have to look up those rules, but I remember those rules were put in place. I think in like uh, in London, for example. So I, I wonder if you could see those going into, into effect. Well, I got to do, I gotta do with the building. This. Just like pack I, it up. I, I, just like the EU demolition squad. I mean, literally, you so you start to offer. This is what I was getting at before. You start to offer extreme, and the government starts or the city starts to offer extreme incentives to renovate the building or convert the building. Mm, that will work one hundred percent of the time. Which city? I'm sure that will. <laughs> Just like make the offer more Listen, open and like put like a smoothie machine in. That's like not going to get people to come. <laughs> I'd come in for some cold brew. That's also a very European solution to that problem. <laughs> I mean, you guys are you guys are out here serving uh, coconut water, so you got you guys get the incentive oh, game. And, and the, yeah, we got uh, a nice office from Japan. Flex on them, men of culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, the line, the line from our investor who uh, we're, we're referencing earlier was that he has never seen this in decades, but people are literally walking away from buildings. That means like you own the building, the bank forecloses on you, and they're just like. All right, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. That means that every single person who works in the building, they don't have an owner. Every every lease terminated. Every single person who's janitorial, you know, operations or or has like a retail establishment in the building potentially gone. I answered I answered my I uh I was wrong about the about the green rules. Basic, but I was right in a sense. It's has nothing to do with the vacancy. It's that 
every like three or f- to five years, you have to upgrade the building. And it's always just been like, oh yeah, we'll upgrade the building. But now there's no incentive to upgrade the building because no one's actually staying in these buildings. So London, it, it is London. London is already starting to do this. They, I guess they started to do this six months ago. They're shutting down buildings because they don't meet the green standards, but there's no incentive to improve to the to hit the green standard anymore. So fire them into the sun. <laughs> like imagine you're like trying to make your office work and it's like not going according to plan and someone's like in your ear talking about how you're not green enough because you didn't upgrade the building (laughs) can you give me five minutes you are not green enough (laughs) (laughs) oh my god um while we're while we're on just you know random subjects here what do, do you guys see the announcement from dune that they're integrating some form of LLM or whatever. So now you won't need to know SQL. You can just type in plain English what you want to see and you'll be able to, to pull that info. Learning I brutal I, for all those junior analysts. Learning there. SQL is like learning cursive now. Like you really do not need it. And it's like I had token terminal up on one uh, computer yesterday and I had chat GPT up on the other. And I was like, man, I'm supercharged right now. And if I can just get you know, like do analytics to work with just natural human language prompts. There's going to be a lot of junior analysts that are looking for something to do. We we all thought that white collar jobs were uh, were going to remain, and the blue collar jobs were were going to get crushed. And boy, yeah, it is the opposite. Yeah, it's <laughs> I mean, um, the, the creatives went first. Yeah, we killed all the artists first. <laughs> yeah, new order is creatives go first, white collar second, and the third people are like the guys who like weld your pipes. And they're they're going to be living like kings. I was having a conversation last week uh, with uh, the head of some game company um, here at GDC, and he goes, "Yeah, we used to have a creative team of eight people. Now we use Midjourney. <laughs> like, boom, gone." Did you see that uh, Elon Musk called for a moratorium on AI research for six months? You never you never know with that. It, it got reported on in the Wall Street Journal and pulled the article but no it wasn't just Elon. Know, it was like, like 10,000 or like a thousand like ai big brains or I'm, something. I'm worried about this stuff like i've definitely sat up a couple of nights and been like thinking about ai and like where it could go uh, there is a non-zero chance that something bad happens i also think elon might be talking his own book a little bit because i i do believe he has a startup in in this race somehow now no he didn't get funded or what happened to it <clears throat> He he did. It's called no, OpenAI. No, 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 no. He, no he's he starting now. It's called Based AI or something. It's like something stupid, some dumb name. But like, what is his proposal? We we stop. We all just put our hands up and like go home. Well, what are you uh, vacation? What are you uh, like when you're when you're playing through some of these scenarios uh, in your head? Like, what are what are some of the things you find yourself? Because I've also done that. So. Too. And I think so. One that I was thinking about is like, okay, cool. You know, the education system, which is like totally broken. You know, now if you can get the best tutor on the planet, you know, it really is somewhat of an equalizer, you know, in that regard. But then I was thinking about if this machine knows everything and knows it to a more insightful extent than you could ever, and it's better at everything and it's faster at math and it's better at writing, what's the point of you even learning it? Like, are you just dest- like, is the new education like? be the best prompt engineer possible that feels literally like a wage cage 
you know, style scenario where you're, you're just paid to like press a button every five hours. I don't know. That that was kind of the stuff that I was thinking about. I have a more optimistic I think take. The same on concern. It. Okay. What's the more opti- optimistic take? My my, I I'll tell you the the optimistic take. You guys have probably heard these criticisms, right? America is falling behind in in math. Like these liberal arts colleges, they they teach you nothing. And instead, really, what we should be doing is teaching math and engineering because those are where all the jobs are. Yeah. Again, the irony of this might be that those programming languages like you don't need to learn because a computer will will learn that for you and like maybe at the end of the day what this stuff still can't really do is reason particularly well like higher level reasoning critical analysis frankly i think life would be a whole lot better if everyone was forced to take human history as a as a major i think it would improve a should lot you of still learn math in in a you know in a world where chat gpt exists Yes, because how do you know that it's accurate? How do you know how to apply? Well, Vance, it it's not just ChatGPT. Like, why would like we don't need to do math? You're not doing math every day. You can just Google. Like, you can just type it in on a calculator. But you still, but it's still important to learn math. Yeah, I guess it's important to like learn things in order to be able to reason through them and be able to prompt this thing. But I don't know. It just feels like the human input is less and less valuable over time, and that's. Well, here, let me let, let let's go back twenty years or let's go back thirty years or something, and 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 someone's like you're one day going to be able to search the internet for literally anything and it'll just answer it immediately for you. You'd be like, well, what? Like, why would we ever learn history if you could just search this stuff? And that's Google. And like, I, vis- I viscerally remember. I, I I'm just trying to justify my history major here, guys. I'm a, <laughs> it's a liberal arts, it's a liberal arts <laughs> major uh, trying to justify it to himself. Yeah. <laughs> How much time do we have on the pod? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I visually remember, like, I grew up in Palo Alto in the 90s. I visually remember Google happening and being like, oh, great. Now all our kids are just going to, like, Google their homework. It's like, no, okay, you can use Google as a tool to do your homework just as everybody does and everybody did. But it's not like it's going to do your homework for you. You still have to be able to reason. Like, the I, my personal perspective is, like, the reason why you go to college, the reason why you study something is not – to learn that subject, it's to learn how to learn. It's just like you're using that subject matter as a as a placeholder to be able to understand how to reason through things. So that when you know some technology comes along and it's just like, okay, great, this this now gets 20%, 50%, 100% easier, you can actually use it, but you know how to reason. Like the history major, or you know, personally the economics major. Classics major. You know, it's it's not like I'm using that every day. Well, maybe more so uh, than history or classics. Jesus. Um, I remember but, walking downstairs into the basement. It was like 4 a.m. And Mike's just like reading the Iliad, like locked in. Tapped in. <laughs> you guys are just finger painting the whole yeah. time. Like, what are, you, what are you doing, buddy? He's like translating the Iliad. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> that was like a huge portion of my college experience, like translating, yeah, like the Iliad, like Aristophanes, these like ancient Greek texts. That was like my college college experience. So I put that to use every day. Obviously. <laughs> where, where are the rest of your classics major colleagues today? Couldn't tell you. There were nine of us. There were nine of us. <laughs> the history department at Emory got defunded. They the just history wiped division? <laughs> like se- yeah. Full 17 of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm bullish. I don't, I don't know. I'm bullish AI. 
I think it's. I think it'll I'm, be. I'm bullish on all the crypto people you have using to AI first too. Like the crypto people are going to get super powered by this first and foremost because everybody's going to get super powered by this. And and also like once you put something, once you put a new technology out into the world, you can't pull it back. And that's why this like open letter is a stupid thing. It's like when we invented the printing press, it's like everyone was scared about like commoners getting access to books and like being able to like read the Bible for themselves. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They don't know how to read that. <laughs> Look at where it got us. I mean, like, the church had a pretty thing. They had a good thing going for a long time. Yeah, They honestly did. General <laughs> ability to read really kind of did not do them a good service, but did not. I'm, no. I, I don't. People started asking questions. That they were not prepared, <laughs> the to answer. prepared to answer. <laughs> I don't think people are going to stop building AI. I, I, I kind of think this is going to fall on deaf ears. The, the, so we've like gone down the rabbit hole uh, in a couple of different ways on just like AI concepts from a from a venture investing perspective. The thing that is undeniable is that there are hundreds of thousands of people, individuals who are on these betas or on these wait lists. Like there is such a thirst for being able to like test out these different tools, to be able to try these different you know systems. I, I think, sure, crypto will be an early adopter just because it's crypto and we're the earliest adopters of everything. But there's so many people that just want to play with this stuff that are going to like experiment with it. It's the fastest growing user base in the history of any product in the world. It's the yeah. best launch in the history of any consumer product Zero going marketing. live. It's the fastest growing. Zero marketing. Everyone wants to use this stuff. Crazy. This is why we need WorldCoin. I'm sorry. How did you tie that together? <laughs> you don't know the thesis? Sam Altman. <laughs> no. No one man should have all that power. You know? All right. This was a fun one. Cheers, fellas.